Let us pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we come again, Lord, to worship you and thank you for your son and the gospel of grace is accomplished and finished work in the salvation of his people. Lord, we thank you for the message that we had, that Christ is our meeting place with you and we praise you, Lord, for your grace to show us the safe meeting place with you and that is at the mercy seat where our sins are covered and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and the law which condemned us is covered by the blood of Jesus. Our Lord, we thank you and we ask now for clarity again as we go into your word and Lord, we just ask that you teach us for these are spiritual things and they can only be discerned spiritually. And Lord, we pray for your blessing upon this teaching. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, 16 to 24. John 7, 16 to 24. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The law, the gospel, and the Sabbath rest. <laughs> the law, the gospel, and the Sabbath rest. We have a lot of things to say. <laughs> I love to talk about Jesus. I mean, honestly, I do. <laughs> I love to talk about Jesus. I love to hear a theology that exalts Jesus. We hold to a very high Christology. A lot of people see Jesus as a good example, just a humble man who had good parents, well taught, well behaved, very nice guy. In the same mode as Gandhi. That's what a lot of people think. But we have a very high Christology. And that means we have a very high view of the nature, the person, and being of Jesus as God. And as God, he is actually God. <laughs> He is God in creation and He is God in salvation. That is, He is sovereign 
in the initiation and completion of the work of salvation. And he is sovereign in providence. That is, in the government of all the created order. We see all things happening because of him being empowered by him and for him, and that is for his glory, being all summed up, all things in all creation, being summed up in him, and that is to say we see all things as servants to him. All created things are servants to Jesus. They do not exist for their own end or for their own good, but they all exist as preparing for the appearance of the full revelation of the glory of the Son of God. And because of that, we don't see salvation as being driven by man's sin and misery. We don't see salvation as being driven by man's obedience. Men are disobedient, not necessarily because of sin, but because of the glory of Christ. Because if you are obedient by yourself, by your own power, you don't need Christ and you can exist outside Christ. And God says no. If you have to approach him, you can only approach him by his son. If you have to have life, it can only be by the life of the son. If you have to have righteousness, it can only be by the blood of his son. If you have to approach him by his blood, it can only be the blood of the son of God and not by the blood of bulls and gods. Salvation is not driven by man's sin or misery. People don't know that. Salvation is driven 100% by the glory of Christ. Because if salvation was driven by man's misery because of sin, then God has to save everybody. If salvation is a poverty alleviation scheme, then God has to save everybody. Because all men are poor. Every one of them. Bill Gates is poor when it comes to righteousness. <laughs> Even all the stuff that he has is not his anyway. It all belongs to the Lord. But we see that not all men are saved. And that is not a limitation of God's power, but it's a limitation of God's purpose. God's purpose is what limits who gets saved and who does not get saved. How and when someone gets saved and where they get saved is all in God's purpose. We do not see Jesus Christ through the first Adam. But we see the first Adam through Jesus Christ. And we see the first Adam through the lens of the gospel. The gospel is what tells us how to properly understand what was happening in the Garden of Eden. We see the fall of Adam as preparing, not as an accident, but as 
preparing for the arrival of Christ. We see the appearance of sin as preparing for Christ. We see the giving of the law as preparing for Christ. Because Christ is all. Because Christ is all. And because of that, we do not tolerate any other view or understanding about God, about Christ, about salvation that minimizes the person of Christ. So Apostle Paul would say, I am under compulsion to declare to you the glory of Christ that is in the gospel. And so he said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, war is me if I do not preach the gospel. War is me if I don't preach Christ. And we are not preaching a gospel where Christ is a helpless son of God. That's not the gospel that we preach. We preach a Christ who is triumphant, the one who overcome all the principalities and powers, the one who finished our redemption, the one who sits on the right hand of God, ever doing whatever is good in his own sight. And that was for free. But it is important. It is important to our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of how, of when, and why of the gospel. People don't understand that. And they are not taught that way. A lot of the preachers don't teach the gospel that way. But this is where we are in our text. And we are going to join all those things that I said in our teaching. But this is where we are in the book of John. The Jews are baffled by Jesus' understanding. Jesus does not quote the rabbis. In his teaching, like they are accustomed to doing. The rabbis, the teachers always used to be courting other rabbis. But Jesus does not do that. When Jesus comes, he seems not to run out of theologically important things to say. He does not teach like the scribes. He teaches with understanding, with wisdom, with power, and yet he speaks from himself. Jesus taught as one who had authority. He said, truly, truly, verily, verily, which they understood. They understood what Jesus was claiming. They understood that Jesus was speaking from his own authority. But Jesus says, I speak not from myself, but from the one who sent me because I seek his glory. And if anyone desires to do the will of the Father, they too shall be taught of God and will come to know that the things that I am speaking are true. And any who speak the truth about God do not seek their own glory. Because the truth about God only exalts God. And anyone who professes to teach the truth about God and they have a teaching that exalts you, then they are not teaching the truth about God. 
And the one who exalts God alone is born of God. They are born from above and they are righteous. Jesus said the one who says the things of God, they are righteous because God has made them to be righteous in his own son. What are we saying? We are saying that the one who speaks about salvation as the work of God alone speaks the things that are true. They speak to the honor of Christ. They speak to the honor of God and there's no unrighteousness in them. There's no unrighteousness in them. There is no unrighteousness in them, not because they are perfect in themselves, like Jesus was perfect, but they are perfect because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ in our text is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he is among the multitude of Jews who have come from Judea and from Galilee and from the diaspora. And they have all converged to observe this annual feast. But the Jews take opportunity to find occasion to kill Jesus. They want to settle some scores. <laughs> they can't stand his teaching because it exposes their evil deeds. And their deeds are evil not necessarily because they are murderers or adulterers or thieves, but because they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Jesus says, your deeds are evil and you are evil. But they have to overcome the light and so they are looking to overcome the light by extinguishing the light. They want to get rid of the light. They want to blow the light like a candle light, but the light cannot be overcome by darkness. So Jesus stands up and he begins to teach midway of the feast. And he tells them that none of them obeys the law. And this seems, when you read this section, it seems to be a continuation of the discussion from John 5. It seems to be a, a discussion because Jesus is going to be making reference in the background to the healing of the man who was healed by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. That is the man that he made well on the Sabbath and the Jews are coming and they're trying to kill Jesus still for what he did. So the Jews were not impressed by this work of Jesus because in their mind, Jesus violated the fourth commandment. And it seems like Jesus is a habitual lawbreaker. The fourth commandment said to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And the Lord God had explicitly given instruction about the Sabbath. In Exodus 31, go to Exodus 31, 12 to 17. Exodus 31, 12 to 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak also to the children of Israel saying, Surely my Sabbath, Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath was given as the token of the old covenant, the law. <laughs> the token of the covenant between God and Noah was the rainbow. Every covenant has a token. The Abrahamic covenant had its own token, and it was circumcision. Genesis 17, 9-14. We, 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 we have the name of Berean, and because of that, we actually have to search the scriptures. And we'll show you these things. Genesis 17, 9-14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So every covenant has a token. The token of the new covenant is not in a day or in physical circumcision. And it's not in the rainbow. And it's not in water baptism. Because there are people who teach that the sign, the token of the new covenant is water baptism. That's not true. The sign of the new covenant is circumcision of the heart. The physical circumcision in the flesh does not translate to water baptism. It translates to the circumcision of the heart. Water baptism is not the equivalent of the Old Testament circumcision because water baptism is a one-time of thing. A token has to be an enduring sign. A ring is a token of marriage. So you always wait. And the rainbow, I actually saw a big rainbow a few days ago. 
it's always a reminder of the covenant that God made with Noah. So a token has to be an enduring sign, a symbol, an expression, a mark, a pledge, and a reminder of the covenant that one entered into. Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 20 and 22, For all the promises of God in him that is in Christ are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also, listen to this, has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people is the seal and the down payment of our full salvation and that is the token of the new covenant. Because the ring, the wedding ring is the seal to the covenant of marriage. For believers, the seal and down payment is what? Is the Holy Spirit in the believer. Is the circumcision of the heart. Which is basically saying the same thing. Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12 is the verse that a lot of people run to to say circumcision is the equivalent of water baptism in the new covenant. Let's read it and see if that is what it actually says. In him that is in Christ, Colossians 2, 11 to 12, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And yet, if you say baptism, buried with him in baptism, what is that baptism that Apostle Paul is talking about? He's talking about Christ on the cross. That is the baptism of Christ. The cross is the baptism of Jesus Christ and we were baptized with him, which means we were immersed into God's judgment. We are immersed into God's judgment when Christ was put on the cross. But he says we have the circumcision that was made without hands. Where is that circumcision? What is that circumcision? It's the circumcision of the heart. So the circumcision of the believer was not done by hands, but it was by the circumcision of Christ, which means it is internal to the person. It's not anything that happens externally. Water baptism is done by hands that automatically removes it. <laughs> and so it can't be the token and is not the equivalent of circumcision. Here, Romans 2.19. Romans 2.19. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from man, but from God. And so circumcision is in the heart, not in water baptism. And so baptism of, by, and in the Holy Spirit is the token of the New Testament. 
because all tokens are permanent signs of the covenant for which they were given. So the baptism that is in view as a token is not water baptism, but it is spirit baptism. Baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit results in a permanent change in a person. As cucumbers are baptized and permanently made into pickles. That's the idea. And that was a detour. But I'd make a point because we are talking about, <laughs> we are talking about the law, the gospel, and the Sabbath rest and circumcision. The subject of controversy here is working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to work the understanding of the Jews of the Sabbath to prove his point. And that's what brought us to that teaching. Okay. But Jesus shows up and he seemed to not care much about the Sabbath <laughs> according to their estimation. They think he is a habitual lawbreaker and so he has to be killed because the instruction that we read from the Old Testament said, if anyone does not obey the commandment, they have to be killed. And so John told us and said in John 5, 16 to 18, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He had healed a man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus argued and said, he works because he sees God the Father working. And so he is here, Jesus, establishing his authority to interpret for them and ourselves what the Sabbath is all about. He is the Lord of the Sabbath and as God, he continues to work in providence. He sustains all things by the word of his power because in him all things consist. If Jesus stops working, the Jews would automatically die. He has to actively Sustain all things. He also is establishing his authority, his superiority over the law, changing it and reinterpreting it and says, I am not bound by the law as you. I am not bound by the law as you are. I am God <laughs> and I do whatever I want. And I have come to give you the proper interpretation and understanding and performance of what the Sabbath is all about. Because I gave the Sabbath and I am the Sabbath. It is all about me. But the Jews hold to the righteousness that is in the law. A righteousness of their own obedience. A righteousness which is by their own performance. They think having the law gives 
automatic entry into God's kingdom. That's the default position of all the Jews. But Jesus rebukes them and says in verse 19 of John 7, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Moses gave you the law as the mediator of the law. But Jesus says, there's a huge difference between being given the law and keeping the law. We're going to be working a lot on that. There's a difference between, that's Jesus' argument, there's a difference between being custodians of the tablets of stone that were in the Ark of the Covenant and actually performing what the law demands. The law was not given for you to just brag about without keeping it. Because as things stand, none of you keeps the law. Yes, you have the law, but you don't keep the law. It's not enough to have the law. You have to keep it. There are a lot of professing Christians who don't get that. You think that I am a lawbreaker because I heal people on the Sabbath and you want to use the law to judge me and to condemn me so that you can kill me and in the process break the very law that you claim to uphold. That's Jesus' play of theology. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to use your own practice of the law to prove to you that you don't keep the very law. (laughs) But the very fact that you seek to kill me proves that you do not keep the law yourself. Because if you look at the law, it says, thou shalt not murder. And so the very fact that you seek to kill me for a good deed done on a Sabbath proves that you are not keepers of the law and your zeal for the law is misplaced and is not according to knowledge. And yet there are many in the church today who continue to talk about law keeping. They mistake knowing about the law with keeping the law. God requires more than knowing about the law. God requires that you keep the law. The Jews had the law, but did not keep the law, and could not keep the law. And the Christian who wants to keep the law is not different from the Jews. A Christian who wants to keep the law and they think they're honoring Christ by trying to keep the law, do not understand what the law requires. The law requires that it be kept. The law requires 100% obedience all the time if you decide to go by the law. It has to be honored 100% and not in part and not in picking and choosing provisions of the law that are convenient to us. The Jews were not against the law. They just did not understand the function of the law. The function of the law was to bring them to the very one that they were opposed to. The function of the law was to show them their inability 
to be accepted by God. And that has always been the function of the law. The function of the law for the elect is to bring them to Christ. In John 5, Jesus said to the same Jews, John 5.39, You search the scriptures for in them you think. You think. That's what you think. You search the scriptures because in them you think. You have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. You search the law looking for things to do. But it is the very law which testify of Christ. You think you are going to have eternal life by your own law obedience. But no, the law does not give eternal life. It only testifies of Christ. And many professing Christians have fallen into the same trap of claiming to love the law. They think if they say we love the law of God, that's actually the same thing as keeping the law of God. If you love the law of God, you run to Christ, the one who honored the law of God. They are missing what the law was testifying of. The New Testament is full of teaching that says the believer is not under the law of Moses, and yet many professing Christians still insist on putting the believer under the law. I don't know if they have the book of Galatians in their Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and the whole book of Hebrews. The law was testifying of the righteousness of Christ. It was not testifying of itself as the way of salvation. The law, properly understood, never testified of itself as a way of salvation. It only prepared the way of salvation. It paved the way for the arrival of salvation. For the arrival of the gospel. For the arrival of faith. For the arrival of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. For the arrival of free justification, for the arrival of the true star of the show, Jesus Christ and not Moses. The law prepared us for Mount Calvary and not Mount Sinai. The law prepared us for Mount Calvary and not Mount Sinai. Moses, the law was a schoolmaster, a tutor. Moses, the law, the Ten Commandments, was a babysitter. But we are not under Moses. Now that faith has come, Angela is going to be going back to her parents in Oregon sometime early spring, sometime in the spring next year. She has been babysitting children. When it comes to spring next year, she would have fulfilled her function as a babysitter. The children do not belong to her. She had a temporary function. Okay? The law had a temporary function. She was raising the kids up to a certain point and then she had to leave. But if those kids were hers, she would have gone with them, but the children are not his. So the children of promise do not belong to the law. They belong to Christ. So the law was a babysitter until Christ came for his children. 
Praise the Lord for coming. You never know what the Lord does. Okay. The Lord preaches the gospel in everything. Moses, the law, was a babysitter. But we are not under Moses anymore. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, no longer under the authority of the guardian because we are now heirs with Christ. Moses, Moses could not even take the children of Israel into Canaan. If you still remember that. Moses did not take the children of Israel into Canaan because the promises of God cannot be entered into by the law. You can't. Only by gospel faith. By gospel. By promise. And not by human performance. And it was for this reason that the one who took the children of Israel into Canaan was Joshua. The name of Jesus. It's Joshua who took the children of Israel into the promised land and not the law. Okay? And also... All those who were alive when the law was first given on Mount Sinai, they did not make it into the promised land. None of them, save for Joshua and Caleb. And the reason why Joshua and Caleb made it was because God said he was pleased by the spirit that was in them. They believed God. So they made it because they had the same faith of the gospel. So it's only the promise of the gospel that takes God's people into the promised land. Romans 4, 13 to 16. We talk about law and gospel because <laughs> we are talking about work or grace. And as long as the Lord tarries, that's what we're going to be talking about. In the next 40 years, 50 years, if the Lord keeps me and allows me to speak. Romans 4, 13 to 16. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. Faith is made useless. And the promise made of no effect. Because the law, now we are being told the function of the law. Verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath. The law brings about judgment. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. So the law can only bring judgment on you. But when the law has been removed, you can't sin because there's no law to sin against. And people just go crazy over that. They just can't conceive not having a law. So they have to give you something to do. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith, salvation is of faith, the promise is of faith, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the true believer the true believer in Christ can only talk about faith. The true believer in the gospel can only talk about faith before God because faith is what is in accord 
with grace. Faith brings nothing. Grace brings everything. So faith is the only human condition that is congruent or agreeable, that is consistent with 100% grace. The law brings the works of the flesh to the righteousness of Christ. And when you bring the works of the flesh to the righteousness of Christ, you dishonor Christ. Even though in the flesh it looks like you are a very religious and Christ-loving person. But when God looks at you, he sees you as a rebel and he sees you as a rebel. He sees you as one who dishonors his own righteousness. Because you are bringing your own cooking and you are trying to serve your own cooking to God. So the promise of salvation is by faith so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. The promise of salvation is by faith so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. So if one claims to be both under Jesus and the law, they are saying the law pointed them to Jesus and Jesus then points them back to the law. And that is false. They are saying the law is of faith. That's exactly what they are saying. They are saying when a believer says we are still under the law, when the scriptures clearly in multiple places say the believer died to the law in the death of Christ, what they are saying is the law is also of faith. And they are also saying we can be heirs and our heirship is maintained by our law obedience. And not only that, the seal and down payment of the Holy Spirit that God has given us is not enough to maintain our promise. But you see, God has said the Holy Spirit has been given as a guarantee, as a down payment of the promise that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So your maintenance in the gospel is not by your observance to the law, but is in what God is doing and has done in you by the Holy Spirit. So Apostle Paul says, if you work, if you want to obey the law, that voids faith. And the promise of salvation also is made of no effect. Jesus only points to Jesus. As Elder Rand said, Jesus preached a sermon about Jesus. If one uses the law rightly, they should see Jesus alone. As what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration, when James, Peter, and John lifted up their eyes after God had spoken. They did not see the representatives of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses and Elijah were there. Okay, And God spoke. And God said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
And what happened to Moses and Elijah? They were overshadowed by the cloud. And they disappeared. And so Matthew says in Matthew 17, 8, when they had lifted up their eyes, that is James, Peter, and John, when they had lifted up their eyes to look where Jesus was, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no one but Jesus alone. So if one is looking at the right Jesus, they should see him alone. If they are still seeing Jesus in the company of someone else, in the company of the law, then they are seeing the wrong Jesus. If you still see Jesus in the company of the law, you are seeing the wrong Jesus. And that means you are hearing the wrong gospel. The true gospel of grace says you should see Jesus alone, lifted up, and all his servants overshadowed. When Jesus shows up, when Jesus teaches you about salvation, you should see him alone as your righteousness. All his servants are overshadowed. The law is a servant of Jesus, overshadowed. The prophets are servants of Jesus, overshadowed. John 5, verse 44 to 47. Jesus says, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So the Lord said, those who fail to see that the law points to him and testifies of him, do not believe the gospel. That's what Jesus said. And that's going to cause someone to throw a tantrum. Someone is going to throw a tantrum because they claim to believe the gospel. But Jesus says, if you don't understand that the law is talking about me, you don't believe the gospel. They are receiving honor from one another in their attempts to do the law by themselves. That's what Jesus says. They are not seeking the honor that comes from God only, which is the honor of the imputed righteousness, which is by faith alone in Christ alone. The righteousness of Christ alone is the righteousness of God, is the righteousness that brings honor to Christ alone. So the law was given to testify of the righteousness of God in Christ. And so all those who continue to find relevance for Moses, for the redeemed ones, for those who have believed in Christ, those who continue to find a seat for Moses on the same table with Jesus, are not listening to what Moses is saying. For if they believed in Moses, Jesus says, they would have believed in Christ. And they would have dogged their sheep on Christ alone and not on Christ and Moses. 
for Moses wrote about Jesus, which means the law was about Jesus. But if you do not believe that the law testified of the glory of Christ, then you will not believe in Christ either. So this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the whole law talked about him. And if you believe what the law was saying, then you don't go back to the law. You don't go back to keeping the law. You come to Christ. And if you don't come to Christ, Jesus says, you don't believe Jesus and you don't believe even Moses that you claim to believe. <laughs> and so you'll be found to be an unbeliever of both Moses and Jesus. And your situation is even worse. And that is why it is Moses, the very law. When Jesus says Moses here, he's talking about the law. It is Moses, the very law, which will accuse you because you trusted in it for your righteousness. But the law was never given to give you righteousness. It was never given to give you salvation. It can only accuse you as a lawbreaker, not as a doer of the law. John 3, 28 to 30. John 3, 28 to 30. If you continue to hear our teaching, you are going to be labeled an antinomian, one who is against the law. We are not against the law. We are for the proper use of the law. <laughs> we are not against the law. The commandment is good, is righteous, but it was never given to give you life. John 3, 28 to 30. You yourselves bear me witness, that is John the Baptist, that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Hear that language. I've been sent before him as a servant. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. John the Baptist says, I was sent before him to do what? To prepare for the arrival of Christ. I was sent before him. The law is not the same as Jesus Christ. The law, like John the Baptist, was sent before him to do what? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who has the bride and not the law. The law is the friend of the bridegroom. The law is not an enemy of Jesus. We need to get this understanding because people don't know how to teach it. The law is not an enemy of Jesus. The law occupies the same seventh position as John the Baptist. John the Baptist is only the best man. He is not the bridegroom. The law stands and it hears the bridegroom. And it rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
and the joy of the law is fulfilled in that it has successfully led the bride of Christ, the elect of Christ, to Jesus. How? By teaching us about perfection and righteousness and our inability to do it by ourselves. So the law was fulfilled in the arrival of the bridegroom. The function of the law ended when the bridegroom came. The law is the best man. But let's develop this. If the law is the best man, what happens to the best man when the bridegroom has been joined to the bride? Does he continue to linger around the bride and the bridegroom? Does the best man go to the honeymoon with the bridegroom and the bride? Do they? They don't. Listen to this. And this is why John said, he as the best man, he must decrease. Which means he has to remove himself from the sin that Christ may remain with his bride. And the law occupies the same position as John the Baptist and says, now that the bridegroom has come, guess what? I'm going to decrease. And now I leave Christ with his bride and they can go on a honeymoon. Oh, oh, oh. the Lord is good. The friend of the bridegroom has to respect the privacy of the bride and of the bridegroom. And so, he steps aside. And John stepped aside. And how did John step aside? God killed him. God killed John the Baptist by the beheading by Herod. It's God who did it. That's what it means to decrease. Completely removed. The law is not there. Okay? And we also, we were married to the law. And as Romans 7, 1 to 6 says, but we died to the law. Okay? We had to die to the law that we may be joined to Christ. Christ is not going to get married to someone who is already married to someone else. You have to be divorced (laughs) from your own husband. But if you get divorced, that's not good for Christ. Christ needs your husband to die. Because according to the law, you can remarry if your husband dies. So we died to the law through the death of Christ that we may be joined to another. So the law, like John the Baptist, also must decrease because it has accomplished its purpose as the friend of the bridegroom to bring the bride to his friend. The law, as I said, is not an enemy of Christ, but it occupies a subservient position, a servant position. But it does not continue to stay on the stage once Christ shows up. But the law had a problem. It could not help the bride of Christ. The law could not help the bride of Christ as to give her life. The law could only Condemn the bride. The law is an abusive husband. 
See, the, the, the law is an abusive husband and could only continue to condemn the bride and remind her of her ugly looks. Okay? And bad makeup. And say, oh, you are not fit for marriage. But Christ comes and he makes his bride beautiful. And he makes his bride blameless by clothing his bride with his own wedding dress, with his own righteousness. See, this is what happens when you actually allow the text to say what it says. But the Jews are not amused. <laughs> the Jews can't take Jesus' theology, so they accuse him of having a demon. John does not really draw much on demon teaching. He is mostly concerned about the glory of Christ as the Son of God. But the Jews think that Jesus has a demon, and of course it is a way to try and dismiss him and discredit him. People always do that, right? They discredit you by just saying some useless stuff. In John 8.48, they are going to say to Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay. They have to find a way to make Jesus look bad. And so they diagnosed him of what? Demon possession. And being of an inferior race of the Samaritans. But Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work. We are back to John 7, 21. I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely whole on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. So the Lord Jesus is about to prove to the Jews that they are lawbreakers. <laughs> that they are lawbreakers. He said, I did one work. Just one, and you marvel. I healed a person on the Sabbath, and that is the only work that I did, and you marvel, you wonder, you look at me crazy. But let me give you understanding. Moses gave you circumcision. You have to follow me on this one. Otherwise, yeah, follow me. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying, circumcision did not begin with the law of Moses, even though it was in the law of Moses. Circumcision began with Abraham from Genesis 17, as we learned earlier. That's, that is where God instituted circumcision for all the descendants of Abraham. So it began in the Abrahamic covenant and was commanded, as we read, to be done on the eighth day. And if anyone did not do it, the commandment was they should be cut off from Israel. 
So this is where we are. So all the children who were born on the Sabbath day, but I mean, pregnancy doesn't really care what day it is. So there are a lot of women who are giving birth on the Sabbath day. And if they gave birth to boys on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, what does that mean? The boys have to be circumcised the next Saturday. And the next Saturday will be the eighth day. And it will be a Sabbath. So all the boys who were born on a Saturday had to be circumcised on the Sabbath to maintain the law that God had commanded them. And yet when they were doing the circumcision, guess what? They were working. They were working. Listen to this. So the Jews were essentially breaking the Sabbath themselves to honor another provision of the law. Right? They were forced to be flexible. They were forced to be flexible in their application of the law to honor an external legal requirement of circumcision. And yet Jesus comes on the very same Sabbath to heal someone and they go crazy. So Jesus is pointing to their hypocrisy and saying, you guys are nuts. You are working on the Sabbath because you are honoring the requirement to circumcise for all the children who were born on the Sabbath. And I have come and I've done a better work. And I've made the whole man complete. And you get mad at me. And you're trying to kill me. So with that background, Jesus says to them in verse 23, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely whole on the Sabbath? So a man received circumcision on the Sabbath that the law of Moses should not be broken. And Jesus says, based on the same principle, why are you angry with me that I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? There's some excellent theology here. It's excellent. Listen to this. The Lord says, you are willing to accommodate yourself to working on the Sabbath so that you do not break the law of Moses just to honor a ceremonial requirement of circumcision. Which circumcision only cleanses one part of the body? There's a contrast. Listen to this. The circumcision only cleanses one part of the body. But I have made the whole man clean. I have made the whole man clean. I have made a whole man completely well on the Sabbath. You should be rejoicing for that and not trying to kill me. So Jesus work on the Sabbath. Guess what? It heals the whole man. It makes a whole man clean. <laughs> Their work of circumcision caused pain on the Sabbath and ceremonially only cleaned one part of the body. But he, Jesus, 
made people completely well, the whole man from head to toe and from inside. What is that saying? It is saying that the law does not make the whole man clean. The law does not make the whole man clean. It does not reach down to the source of corruption to heal the man. It only has external observance. It only works to things that are outside. A circumcision is only outside. The law is insufficient to completely heal a man. It is only for external things. It only cleans external body parts. <laughs> it requires Jesus himself to completely heal a man. It requires the gospel to completely make a man righteous. That was the point. To circumcise him from inside, from the heart. And the one who has been made completely righteous by Christ, by the work of Christ, has what? Has entered into God's rest. And that was the point of the Sabbath. To teach people about entering into God's rest through the work of Christ. The Sabbath rest is the rest that God entered himself after creation. It's not like God was tired. God never gets tired. <laughs> the creation ordinance was there to preach the gospel. That was the point. In Jeremiah 17, God tells us about the Sabbath. And you've got to hear this. Let's go to Jeremiah 17, 19 to 25. And we'll finish sometime today. Unless Christoph passes out. Jeremiah 17, 19 to 25. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, <laughs> nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and horses, they and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. Those who enter into the gates of Jerusalem, the city of David, that's the city of Christ, shall not enter it bearing any burden on the Sabbath day, nor even bring anything 
bring anything into the city, into the gates of Jerusalem. There's none who shall enter the city of David, the city of Christ, bearing their own burden, bearing their own works of righteousness. That's the point. You shall bring nothing when you enter into the city of David. You bring nothing when you enter into the city of David. There's none who shall enter into God's Sabbath rest if they come carrying anything of their own. For whatever a man brings into the city of God is a burden on their shoulders. Whatever it is that you bring to the city of God from you, God says, is a burden. It does not give them rest and is not sufficient to give them rest. And God will not even allow you to enter into his city gates. He will not allow you to enter into his city gates if he sees you carrying any burden on you. And God says, if you do that, if you bring anything into the city gates, into Jerusalem, you are not listening to me carefully. What is that saying? It is saying that the Sabbath regulates the condition of salvation. The Sabbath tells us the end of salvation. To enter into the gates of God without your own merit. Without your own righteousness. Because your own works can only be a burden for you. You are trying so hard to be righteous. And yet God says that's not enough to enter into my rest. It regulates what cannot be brought into it. The Sabbath teaching is teaching us what men cannot bring to their own rest. And what men cannot bring to their own rest is their own works. And that is why a man was stoned for picking sticks on the Sabbath. Just picking some sticks and he was killed. And that was teaching that men should cease from all their works of righteousness to help God in their own rest. But to rest in Christ alone, to rest in the provision of Christ alone, and even the children of Israel did not pick manna on, on Saturday. They were to pick all the manna on Friday. They were to collect enough to eat over the weekend on Friday. And they lived on God's provision alone on the Sabbath day. And there were some who went on a Saturday, right? I remember there's some who went on a Saturday trying, looking for manna. It was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> there's no work to be done on the Sabbath because there's no human works that are required for salvation. There are no human works that are good enough to take you into the rest of God. And so to honor the Sabbath is to stop working for your own salvation. And there are people <laughs> who think they're honoring the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Adventists. They think they're honoring the law. 
is because they don't understand the gospel. They are dishonoring the Sabbath when they try to keep it and try to enter it by their own works of righteousness. The one who honors the Sabbath is the one who has ceased from their works and have rested only in the work of Christ for salvation. Those who observe the Sabbath to be righteous by it dishonor the Sabbath. They are actually lawbreakers because the true Sabbath rest is ended only by faith in Christ alone. And yet many are busy bringing out their many burdens out of their houses and bringing them into the gates of the Lord, into the city of the Lord. And the Lord says to these, you are not paying heed to my word. You are not. The Lord says to you and I, what burdens are we bringing into the city of God for salvation? The Lord says, don't bring any burdens on your shoulders. All burdens, all works of righteousness, they have to be surrendered outside the gates <laughs> or else you will not go in. What is that saying? Hebrews 4, 1 to 11, and we are done. Hebrews chapter 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they had did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who had it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I saw in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day saying in David. Today after such a long time as it has been said. Today if you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The Sabbath, the Sabbath is about entering into the rest of the gospel by the complete healing of Jesus Christ. It is not about the external observance. It is about the completed work of Christ Jesus as our own righteousness by which we enter the city of Jerusalem. It is about seizing from one's works 
that one may rest in the works and provision of Christ alone. And this is the gospel of grace. Jesus was revealed that we may enter into God's rest. Into God's rest. God preached the gospel of grace in creation by resting on the seventh day and now invites all his people to enter into that blessedness, to enter into that rest by faith in Christ Jesus. And one does not need to weep for it. They can't try to be good for it. They can't try to smell good for it. You can't go to the mall and buy some new deodorant and say, now I'm smelling good, I'm going to enter into God's rest. God says, no, you're bringing a burden and there's no entrance for you through the city gates. Blind but mirrors went into God's rest. The sick man who was healed by Jesus entered into God's rest. The man with the withered hand who was healed on the Sabbath day, he entered into God's rest. The blind man in John chapter 9, he also entered into God's rest. Why? Because they brought nothing. Even blind by mirrors had to take off his clock to enter into the rest of God. They brought nothing but their inability to help themselves. They brought nothing but their sin. They came naked into this rest that they may be covered by the righteousness of Christ. They came blind into this rest that their eyes may be opened by Christ. They came with a withered hand into this rest that Christ may straighten their hands. They came bent and bowed like that woman. She could not straighten herself up, but guess what? She entered into God's rest. The law cannot give you rest. It does not cure the person completely but only a part of the external body. The law was given for external obedience, but could never cure the whole person. Only the gospel of grace cures the whole person and brings a person into God's rest. Which Sabbath? Which Sabbath? Those who were under the law failed to enter because of unbelief. In their many professing Christians, who are failing to enter into God's rest because they think they can please God. They think that they can honor God by bringing their own burdens. And God says, no, there's no entrance for you. And Jesus says, finally, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So his point was, if you understood what the law meant, you would have judged with a righteous judgment. You would have understood what I am doing, but you are evil. You don't understand what is happening. And so they stumbled at the gospel. And many are stumbling at the gospel of grace because God has not given them the light to understand the things of Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again to worship you and thank you for the healing that happened on the Sabbath. The healing of us who had withered hands, the healing of us who were sick and were by the pool of Bethesda, just lying there and waiting to die, and yet, Lord, you showed up. You showed up and you commanded that we pick up our pellets 
and we walked right into the Sabbath rest. And Lord, we thank you for this teaching uh, of your fulfillment of the law and the testimony of the prophets and the law of your own righteousness and the testimony of the law of our own inability to obey you. So we praise you for the law. But as we have been learning, the law had a temporary function to bring us to our knees that we may run to Christ. Lord, we thank you for the city of refuge, Jesus Christ, from whom we hide from the law. We thank you for the blood of Christ that covers the law. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. And Lord, we pray for again for all those that shall hear. May you give them understanding. We pray for all those who are not here this morning. Our Lord, may you remember them and may you cause them to know that we were thinking of them and we miss them. And Lord, we pray for the salvation of your people. Wherever they are named, wherever they are, our Lord, may you open their hearts that they may hear the gospel as the gospel, that they may hear the gospel as those who need to let go of their burdens. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.